Hey everyone, welcome to episode 11 of the True Crime Couple podcast. We just want to apologize because we had a little bit of a hiatus for a few weeks, but the beginning of the school year is always crazy and we had a lot of stuff going on at home, but we're back to our regular schedule now. And without any further ado, we want to start episode 11 because we made you guys wait a little bit and we're really sorry about that. Just remember, if you like what you hear, to leave us a review on iTunes. That helps us out so much. And you can stop by our Instagram or our Twitter page at True Crime Couple. Okay. In 1970, Fayetteville, North Carolina, was home to the largest army base in the United States. This being of particular importance because of America's involvement in the conflict in Vietnam. The base, home to around 500,000 men and their families at any time, was in constant rotation. Families were moving in and out of the apartments on base constantly. Families were left home alone as their husbands and fathers went off to face the Viet Cong in an unknown land 9,000 miles away, leaving them vulnerable to the seedier side of Fayetteville. A town set up for the families of those serving our country also appealed to the young men joining the army. Bars and strip clubs lined the Fayetteville town streets, and those returning from war would bring home with them a newfound addiction to drugs or alcohol. Many returning vets, after receiving no help from the army, will turn to the streets of the town, where they had easy access to any drug of their choice. Crime rates in the 1970s in Fayetteville were some of the highest in our nation's history. This can be attributed to financial problems and mental instability of returning troops, and most notably the high rates of drug addiction. Some of the crime rates we're talking about, break-ins, attacks, robberies, that was commonplace. But there are going to be several murders, unsolved murders, in Fayetteville throughout the 1970s and 80s. And we see that happen a lot with towns that are around military bases because of the drug addiction issue we have that we face after Vietnam. And also because of the PTSD symptoms, there's there's actually a lot of cases of people returning to homes that they once lived in and then when they're high or they're drunk and they just forget that they don't live there anymore that happens a lot actually yeah that's insane i mean but i mean look what those men were going through i mean it is very traumatic yeah and then you know you're high heroin yeah or you're super drunk you forget you live somewhere and you're trying to break Mm -hmm. in and then they would get arrested for breaking in but that's not really what's happening right At the time of today's case, the town of Fayetteville, and the country for that matter, was on edge. Six months prior to February 1970, a cult in California, known only as The Family, led by a man named Charlie Manson, was found responsible for the Tate and LaBianca murders. In total, including the onborn baby of actress Sharon Tate, the Manson family had claimed the lives of 10 people in order to create an apocalyptic race war within the United States. After the war, Manson and his followers, he claimed, would rise to power. Well, that's just kind of like the accepted theory of the Manson murders, but we're going to cover the Manson murders soon, and we're going to get to the bottom of what Manson's plan really was and if there really even was a plan. But either way, this was the worst nightmare of the conservative army town. The counterculture movement they were combating had now turned violent. 
Those families of army officers would now look twice at the teenaged army vet with long hair they saw at the grocery store. The unease the country felt with the misunderstood counterculture movement only grew after those murders. The only thing that's going to keep the families feeling safe is the fact that they feel like they live at an army base, and in reality, that's kind of supposed to be the safest place in the United States. However, the security would be stripped from them after the murders of the McDonald's family, and that's what we're going to be covering today. The murders of the McDonald family and the case of Jeffrey McDonald. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Jeffrey McDonald is going to grow up in Patchogue, New York, out in Long Island. And right, John, that's how you pronounce it? I think you pronounce it Patchog, but there are certain people who I'm close to that call it Patchogie, and I don't know where they get that from. It's just like the level of Long Island you it, are? Yeah, if you, grew, if you grew up there your whole life, that's just how you do it, and okay. it's weird. All right. But everything they do is weird. It's very true. It's like really not considered a part of New York City. It's just like Long Island. Well, it really should be its own state. I would make the argument. It could be. There's a lot of people that live out there. <laughs> So it was during his time at Patchogue High School that Jeffrey McDonald is going to meet his future wife, Colette Stevenson. It was clear even as early as high school that McDonald could be categorized as an overachiever. He managed to pull an impressive balancing act between captain of the football team, president of the senior class, and he was even voted most popular and most likely to succeed by his peers. You know, like the kind of yearbook thing? Right. Did you ever win anything, John? Uh, I believe I got most likely to succeed. Wow, well... I mean, I think I'm just about there, sort of. Yeah, well, hopefully you don't murder someone Oh, like no. this person. No, no, no. Okay, did you win anything? Yes, I did. Personality plus. You know what? The truth of the matter is, I, I knew that, that <laughs> that's what it was. I didn't even want to give you that because it's like, ooh, personality plus, woo. Superstar. I'm fantastic. All right. <laughs> okay. So through this all, he was able to maintain a GPA high enough to earn him a scholarship to the prestigious Princeton University. And while at Princeton University, McDonald is going to continue his romantic relationship with Colette. His sophomore year of college, he learned that Colette was pregnant, and the two of them are going to get married on September 14th, 1963. The McDonald's welcomed their first child, Kimberly, to the family on April 18, 1964. After studying at Princeton for three years, McDonald's was accepted to the Northwestern University Medical School in Chicago. It was here that the family welcomed their second daughter, Kristen, into the world on May 8, 1967. In 1968 to 1969, the family moved again, this time back to New York, so McDonald's could complete his residency at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York City. I mean, these are very prestigious places that he's going. I know, he's got wow. a pretty good resume going on Absolutely. here. And Jeffrey McDonald then is going to make the decision to join the Army on July 1st, 1969. This caused the family to move again, this time to Fort Bragg, in and around Fayetteville, North Carolina. McDonald here held the rank of captain and was assigned to the Green Berets as a group surgeon to the 3rd Special Forces Group. 
in September of 69. So he is a decorated army officer, a surgeon. He's been to Princeton, Northwestern. Really impressive stuff he's got going on. He's Columbia Presbyterian. And he did his residency at Columbia. That's very good. Yeah. So by all accounts, Colette was really supportive of her husband and his career. She didn't mind all the moving around. However, she wanted to attend school as well. And once Jeffrey got into a routine, he started working clinic hours and receiving the training that he needed. She decided to start taking night classes at the University of North Carolina. And they held classes on base. So she really didn't have to like travel all the way to the university. But she was taking night classes on base. During this time, in late 1969, the family learned that they were expecting a third child. Now, there are reports of this being a boy. Like, the third child is supposed to be a boy. They're expecting. But on an interview that MacDonald is going to give with Larry King, he admits that they never knew what the sex of the baby was, that they wanted it to be a surprise. Okay. And that around the time of the murders, Colette was anywhere from four and a half months pregnant to five months pregnant. So she was definitely showing. Really quickly. Mm-hmm. It's remarkable that Larry King has been an you know, interviewer for that long. No, like, it is, but he didn't... It was like around 2009 that he interviewed him. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, it well, wasn't still, like early in his career. I mean, still, Larry King... Larry King's the boss of like interviews. He's, he's People the like old, him. one of the oldest men alive. Yeah, yes. absolutely. <laughs> Friends that live on base and that frequent the McDonald house said that the All-American family was a happy one. In fact, that Christmas, McDonald actually bought his two daughters a pony. Like a legit pony? A like legitimate a live, pony, yes. You know, this is not a pony? Yeah, this is not a stuffed pony or a rocking horse. This is a real-life pony. I'll tell you what, that's dedication. Yeah, it's every girl's little girl's dream. That's very sweet. Now, they technically live on an apartment in base. I mean, I wouldn't, it's not like an apartment building, but it's like a garden apartment where there's two apartments connected to each other, then a little bit of grass space, two apartments connected. So it's kind of like where we live. Right. Yeah. Right. And they don't have the pony at the apartment, but at a nearby farm. Like a ranch? Yeah. So they, and they're like renting out the space I mean, as well cool. as buying the pony. That's great. So even on the... um night of the murders we're gonna see that they go visit they visit the pony every night okay that's a and that's extra that's a lot of work yeah this happy life that the family had was going to come to a grinding halt on the stormy night of february 17th 1970 it's technically february 16th but it goes into the more early at morning hours of the 17th and r- straight out of a scary movie it was a really bad night the storms are bad, thunderstorms, so it was very loud, and they say that's probably what, why the neighbors couldn't hear all the sounds Over the, you know, the of the crime the taking yeah. place. Yeah. So first we're going to tell you the account of the murders from the perspective of Jeffrey MacDonald, and this is a story that he's going to tell investigators, and it's pretty much a story that he is still sticking to today. According to MacDonald, he returned home from a 12-hour shift at the hospital base at 5 p.m. He played with the girls, took them to see their pony, and made dinner for them. Colette, who was out taking college classes, is going to return home around 9 p.m. And the girls were already asleep, so Jeffrey and Colette are going to share one drink before she goes off to bed for the night. 
says she goes to bed around like 11 o'clock. So this is a couple that's enjoying their time together. It's also like, you know, 1970. So it was really kind of okay if a pregnant woman was having a drink. (laughs) We know now that a surgeon husband would probably say, "Mm, maybe you shouldn't be drinking. Yeah, really? (laughs) McDonald's remained up reading until about 1 or 2 a.m. McDonald states that when he went to bed, he found his youngest daughter, Kristen, in bed with his wife. Now, at the time of the murders, Kimberly, the oldest daughter, is five, and Kristen, the youngest daughter, is two. So Kristen is in bed with his wife, and he discovers that she had wet the bed. So he picked her up and returned her to her room. Knowing Colette had a long day, he didn't want to wake her up by changing the sheets. So he went to sleep on the couch. Side note, when we have children, if our daughter ever pees the bed, wake me up to change the sheets. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Julie noted. Sometime between the time McDonald is going to go to sleep on the couch and when he's going to make a phone call to police, military police, just before 4 a.m., He is awoken to hear his wife screaming. Now, he's not sure exactly about the time because he's woken from his sleep and he's not sure how much time passes because throughout this whole event, he actually loses consciousness twice, two times. So kind of like how you woke me out of my sleep this morning. Um, I thought there was an intruder in the apartment. You literally thought there was an intruder in the apartment. Oh, guys. Yeah. So that's exactly what happened. She startled me by... Yelling my name. I was in such a nice deep sleep. Dreaming about... I don't even remember. Ponies. Ponies, maybe. I don't know. But I was sleeping so amazingly. It was amazing. She took so Well, I'm so really comfy. sorry. We need to get and over I just this. Hear, we need to move on. John! And I jump out of bed and I almost had a heart attack. And there was nobody in the apartment. It was just our noisy neighbors. But anyway, proceed. So loud upstairs. Cry, like, I don't know. The refrigerator must have fallen over. I don't know what could have made that much noise. But I thought it was someone in our kitchen, whatever. And we apologize because we don't, I think they're building like an, a full wall entertainment center upstairs. There's drilling. So if you hear it, we're sorry. There's drilling, there's sawing, there's a bunch of different things going up upstairs. I don't know what's going on. We don't on. even know how they got that stuff. Like, how do you get a table saw up there? I don't even know. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, we're really sorry. So Jeffrey McDonald is going to wake to his wife screaming. And she's calling his name over and over again. And then she calls out, why are they doing this to me? And this is going to come into contention. So it's important that you know she says, why are they doing this to me? McDonald said it was then that he noticed a woman standing in the living room. She was wearing a blonde wig and had on a big floppy white hat. She was holding a red candle and was chanting... Acid is groovy, kill the pigs. It's not very Manson-y, right? Hmm. Before he knew it, he was attacked by three men. He said two of the men were white and the other was black. They were attacking him with an ice pick and a club of some sort. During this attack, McDonald sustained 23 wounds and had bruises all over his body. One of his many wounds caused his lungs to, his one lung to collapse. And this is going to cause him to pass out right there in the living room. Once he regains consciousness, McDonald stated that he went to check on his family. He found them all brutally murdered, blood all over the apartment. 
his daughters in their bed and his wife laying on the floor beside their bed. He tried to resuscitate his pregnant wife, but it didn't work. MacDonald then covered her with his pajama top. He called the military police and informed them that there was a stabbing just before he's going to pass out again from his sustained injuries. Wow. So when first responders approached the scene, they thought they were arriving to a domestic dispute. However, they immediately called for backup upon seeing the carnage within the McDonald home. So I just want to backtrack a little bit because the people that are going to claim that McDonald committed these murders are going to say, why would Colette yell out, why are they doing this to me? if the men are in the living room attacking him. So who's in the bedroom? But it seems like McDonald's claiming that at first they weren't in the living room, but then came out to the living room. I see what you're saying. So that's in a little bit of a contention. We do have with us right here the floor plan of the apartment. And it is possible that if McDonald's is If he's woken up from the sofa and he stands up, his back is to the hallway of where all the bedrooms are. So it is quite possible that the men could have run out and come up from behind him. So that is possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so much easier when we can like visualize it. If we can try to get this for the on Instagram or Twitter, that's where they can see it. Oh, I'll get right on that, John. Okay. Anyway, that way you guys can have also have a look as well. So when first responders get there, they find McDonald in his bedroom lying next to his unconscious wife. He himself is also unconscious at this point. They revive him through CPR, and the first thing he does is ask about his daughters once he's revived. So that's not too suspicious. He's concerned about his daughters. McDonald is then taken to the hospital where he is treated for his wounds. He's allowed to shower, and the clothes he was wearing were thrown away by hospital staff. So this is a big problem. McDonald's allowed to shower, so any blood on his body or any... There's no evidence taken from his body. If he was in a struggle with these two men, he may possibly have their DNA on him. Right. His pajama top is taken into evidence because it was on top of Colette's body. Because he's claiming he laid it over her. But his pajama bottoms were thrown out, as were his underwear. He was allowed to shower, which is going to become a problem later because they do find a bloody footprint. In, in the apartment. In the, in the apartment. So if they would have known if there was blood under his feet. I mean, they, there was a lot of testing they could have done with this evidence that they didn't get to do, but they do still have his pajama top. The Army's Criminal Investigation Division, or the CID, then began their investigation. So it's kind of like, you know, like the show like NCIS, but that's with the Navy. The Army has the CID. And also, it's, it's pro- that, that's who's going to be the one doing all the work here because it's on a military base. Correct. It's so. not going to be the Fayetteville Police Department. Everything's done through the CID because they are on a military base. Right. So none of this is done through civilian police, only military at first. The CID, in particular, one investigator named Ivory, is going to believe that something's wrong with this whole story put forth by McDonald's. They claim that the crime scene and the physical evidence didn't match up to the story. 
In the living room, the coffee table was pushed on its side, and the investigators claimed that the table was top-heavy, so if it was knocked over, it would be completely flipped over, like with its legs in the air. In general, they just believed the house didn't show as much of a struggle that you would think it would after three men attacking an entire family, especially the way McDonald kind of described it. They also had contention with a flower pot. I know it sounds ridiculous, but the pot was actually sitting on the floor upright, but the plant was pulled out of it and laying on its side. Hmm. Almost like everything was trying, almost like everything was like being staged. Right. Like everything was staged. Investigators also had a problem with McDonald's pajama top. They claim that if what McDonald stated was true, that during the scuffle, his pajama top came off and he wrapped it around his arm and hand, then the ice pick wounds would be more staggered. They also claim that he would have defensive wounds at this point. So McDonald says that during the struggle, his pajama top is going to come off. So he wraps it around his right hand because McDonald's right-handed to defend himself from the ice pick wounds, like ice pick jabs. Right. And the holes in McDonald's pajama top are kind of like clean stabs. They're not jagged. And they're saying if there was an attack, that it would be more jagged. And that his hand, he would have gotten some defensive wounds. Was there any, you know, I was just about to ask you that. Were there, were, were there any defensive wounds on his hands? Um, there weren't like any. puncture holes from an ice pick. There were puncture holes from an ice pick on his body, but not his hands. Hmm. Which is odd. Which is odd. Very I don't odd. Jump ahead, but it is odd. It is super odd. If you are, you know, if you're going to be defending yourself with someone that's trying to kill you with an ice pick, your first instinct really is you're going to put your hands out. If the, and that would right. be any weapon being used against you. Right. And they're saying if he did put his hand up in a defensive manner, then the stab wounds from the ice pick would be kind of more jagged. They wouldn't just go clear through. Well, right, because if it's going clear through on a straight angle, it means they're self-inflicted. Right. Whereas if it was jagged, it's because it's, you know, the if you're angle... defending it off, the angles are going to be off. Correct. Another issue the CID had was the wounds McDonald sustained while he was attacked, like we were saying. Why were McDonald's wounds so light in comparison to the attack on his daughters and his wife? So, McDonald is going to have 23 wounds. One is going to perforate a lung, which causes it to collapse. And he does have bruises all over his body. Okay. And he did suffer a concussion. Now, just from that little excerpt, basically, mm-hmm. I can tell you that this is a trained professional. Not only is he a Green Beret, he's a medically trained professional. Right. It is very possible that that punctured lung could be self-inflicted. Right, like he knew where to stab like he himself. he knew where so... it wouldn't be fatal. Right. It would cause damage, but not fatally. Right. I mean, a collapsed lung is terrible. It's not a good thing to have. But, I mean, it's it's clearly not as bad as, you know, something else. I mean, he could, you know, I don't know. No, it's... I know what you're saying. That's the argument a lot of people make, that McDonald, a trained surgeon, is going to know where to inflict these wounds. I, I, look, I'm no medical professional, but it seems to... Like, I remember watching something on TV where if you were to strike yourself somewhere on your right or left side... By like your ribs, you're able to go to through the uh, rib, cage. rib cage and basically puncture your lung. He, if there, you know, if there was any well, sign a surgeon of that, would know how a to surgeon do that. would know exactly where to go for that. 
The only thing that I think is a little interesting is the fact that he has a concussion and bruises all over his body, which is kind of difficult to do to yourself. It's really not, though. Right. I, maybe right. I just don't know because I've never like I mean, tried look, to bruise I, I, myself I, I, up. Maybe I'm taking it a, a little too far, but I can tell you from experience, I've had, and this is no exaggeration, guys, I've had six concussions. High school sports. We'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. But Or running into walls. Uh, or No, I've never ran into any walls. <laughs> But but believe it or not, it's real. It's really easy to, you know, give yourself a concussion. To get a concussion. I mean, all it really takes is blunt force trauma. I mean, yeah, it would be crazy to think that this guy would just run into a wall, but you never know. <laughs> I mean, right? But there were no. There was no. He would have had to do it some other way because there was obviously no. Oh look, there's a head well, really, print I mean, through look, a wall. All a concussion is is just your brain banging off the sides of your skull. Right. So it could have so happened a different way. Some way. Yeah. Okay. Those were McDonald's wounds. And now we're going to compare them to the wounds that his daughters and his wife sustained. And they're brutal, so just be aware. Kimberly, his five-year-old daughter, who's found in her bed, is going to be clubbed in the head repeatedly. Basically, her skull is exposed. She's stabbed eight to ten times in the neck and chest area with a knife. Kristen... The younger daughter, who's two years old, is stabbed 15 times with a knife and 33 times with an ice pick. Jeez. That is overkill. I mean, she's overkill, two years old. insane rage. That's, yeah, that's like bloodlust, man. Yeah. That's and, like you started stabbing and like you, and just, you just can't couldn't stop. stop. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And that is very similar to what is going to, that, what happened during the Manson murder, the Tate murders. Hmm. There's so many similarities between the two cases. Colette is repeatedly clubbed throughout her body, and it seems like throughout this clubbing that's going to take place, both of her arms get broken. So that's how bad she's Was there beaten. any signs of torture? No, it was just like they hit her so hard with a club that her bones broke. Okay. I only said that because... Going back to that line that you said, you know, why are you doing this to me? Oh, I maybe. thought maybe could there be a point where she was defending herself and then they basically were able to subdue her to the point of just, you know. It could be that also they were trying to hold her arms as right. we don't. Yeah. We're not sure what the narrative is. But she was not only clubbed, but stabbed 16 times with a knife and 21 times with the ice pick. Once again, it's just overkill. It's yeah. like... And she's visibly <laughs> pregnant. But the concentration of her wounds are going to be more on her chest than by the baby. So that's just something to take into consideration when we're trying to determine who could be responsible for this. Because obviously the person responsible for this murder doesn't mind harming a child if two-year-old Kristen is going to have 48 stab wounds to her body oh, in total. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean It is interesting as well that there's so many murder weapons. There's a club, an ice pick, and a knife. I was actually just gonna say that. That's a lot. <laughs> there's multiple weapons. And that's very rare for one attacker to use multiple weapons. But we've weapons. seen that in other cases that we've covered before. We have. But then it it would be bizarre I think to club someone, then stop and then get a knife and then stop and then get an ice pick. Which leads you to believe that there's more than one suspect. Correct. Which I, from the looks of it, 
if it isn't the husband, it has to be more than one person here. Right. And now, to add even more intrigue to this, all three of those things, all three of those weapons came from the McDonald household. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Wow. So the CID is arguing, basically, shouldn't a Green Beret have been able to put up a better fight? But here I think they're contradicting themselves. They're saying McDonald didn't get as many wounds as everybody else. Well, that's probably because he is trained in combat. But then they're arguing that he should have been able to take all three men. I think that's well, completely unrealistic. I think that's just pri- their pridefulness. You know, if, that's, if that's a word, pridefulness. Right, and they, being in the, the special they, forces. You know, they, they, it's their pride. I mean, of course they're going to say, well, you know, one Green Beret can take out this many people. I mean, it's just like one of those things. It's like, it's just the way He's military also, look at people. And we did look into this, and we talked to some people that we do know in the military. And we asked... If someone's a surgeon, are they going to be trained to the level of a Green Beret? And in most cases, yes. But when you think about the time period and the amount of time McDonald was in the Army, it's only one year. So I think he joined the Army as a surgeon, but do I think he was as extensively trained as all the Green Berets he was treating? No, I don't think so. I don't think so either, but they are... It hasn't even been a year since he was in the Army. Right, but they they have to be... um, um, Trained in combat. Right, to use weapons and things of that nature. For example, my grandfather was in the Navy, but he was a dentist on an aircraft carrier. I mean, and he, you know, he was just proficient with a weapon, like a gun, you know, like it wasn't like, uh, you know, where he had this crazy naval training. Right. So it's the same thing here. I I believe so, especially during time of Vietnam when people were being trained very quickly because we had a constant fluctuation of people leaving, coming back. The other things that the CID are going to call into question is the fact that fibers from McDonald's pajama top was found under Kristen's fingernails and that the murder weapons were all found just outside the back door of the McDonald house. So when the people fled the scene, they didn't take the weapons with them. They just left them right outside the back door. Hmm. I don't think the pajama top thing is weird. I think that he lives in the house. There's a cross-contamination. If McDonald's story is true and he carried Kristen to bed then there, she quite possibly could have grabbed at his pajama top. Yeah, that's stupid. That's silly. I write, th- I write that right off. But I do think it's interesting that these weapons were disposed of right outside the back door. That's interesting. It's weird. Yeah. Because, I mean, weapons are going to link you to a murder. Why the hell would you leave them right outside the door where they can be found? Correct. Stupid. Now, the final contention the CID had was the similarity of the crime to that of the Manson family murders that had occurred only six months prior. The chanting of the woman in the hat, the fact that the word pig is going to be written on blood on Colette's headboard. So somebody using surgical gloves that are the same model as the surgical gloves found in the McDonald household, basically like they cut it off and just use the fingertips of it, writes the word pig going vertically down the headboard using Colette's blood. And the, See, the, to me, this screams copycat. Yes. And I feel like, I do feel like, the, you know, I feel like the father could really do this. It's like, 
it really points like, okay, he saw this on the news. It was a very televised event. Maybe he's thinking. Maybe I he's could thinking I can get away with all this. I mean, I don't know why he would it. do this, but I can frame this on a copycat or you know someone that's affiliated some way, shape, or form with the people in the Manson cult, right? Or a group of people who are obsessed with the idea of this Manson murder, who are taking drugs, may say, "Well, let's go out and recreate what Manson did." And you know what? You know what really um, stops me from thinking that it's someone other than him, or someone that you know. Only because it's on a military base, it's well protected. It's gated even back then. Right, the people These, that you have patrols, military police. Whether it was someone else or whether it was him, yeah, it doesn't matter. They are military. Related. That's what I'm saying. It has to. It, so that means it had to happen within but the confines do remember of the base. That you can have visitors on the base with you, and there was a lot of young people having friends over, doing drugs, drinking. So, yes, they were on the base, but every a lot of people do have access to the base. So we can't... I understand what you're saying. But I know what you're saying. It is supposed to be considered a super safe place to be. But probably the most damning piece of evidence here is the issue of Esquire magazine that's found in the family's living room. On the cover of that magazine is going to be Manson. And a whole, whole story covering every salacious detail of not only his time on the ranch, where the commune kind of was located, um, but also the murders. Hmm. So there was... A magazine explaining all of the Manson murders there. So that was, they considered, okay, maybe he was up reading about the Manson murders and he said, this is the way I'm going to do it. That's kind of what they're inferring. So although the CID felt like they had a lot of evidence and they felt something was wrong, it would be really difficult to prove that MacDonald committed these murders. And that's due to gross mismanagement of the crime scene. What the CID thought was going to be their strongest evidence against McDonald will turn out to be the most contested. The crime scene, which would end up being McDonald's three-bedroom apartment, was not in any way secured. People from the base were walking through the crime scene, shocked that this could happen within the safety and security of a military base. In fact, while they were doing this, they were contaminating all evidence in the house. An ambulance driver is even going to admit to the CID that when he walked into the house, he rearranged the crime scene. He rearranged the crime scene? Yeah, he rearranged stuff in the living room. I mean, to what degree? Like, he just started moving shit around? He He said he couldn't recall exactly what he did, but that could, maybe that's why the flower pot was turned up the right way. Or the table, the coffee table. He also stole Jeffrey McDonald's wallet. What? Yeah, there was money in the wallet, some cards, so he took the wallet. Oh my god. Investigators also found a bloody footprint on the laminate floor of the hallway, like I said before. They took pictures of the print, but lost all the samples that they took. And those weren't the only pieces of evidence they lost. The four torn tips of the rubber surgical gloves that were used to write the word pig on the headboard were also lost. As were the samples of, there was skin cells found under Colette's nails. They lost of those course. samples too. I hate when this happens. How I do hate they lose when things it? just go missing. Literally, do, I mean, do you realize? Let's just 
do this really quickly. Every case that we've covered, this is our 10th episode now. 11th. Um, well, I meant... Come on, John. Well, no, I mean, we're doing 11 now, but okay. I'm saying we've covered right. 10 episodes. Yes. Every single episode, literally, there's been evidence missing. Every single one of them. Yeah. It's, it literally drives me insane that people, you have one job, and you keep, and you keep a chain evidence. of evidence. It's yeah, so keep. infuriating. So the hands of the... This is another problem, too. The hands of the victims were not bagged, which is common practice to preserve evidence, especially if you think evidence is going to be found underneath fingernails. So technically, any evidence that is found underneath the nails of anyone is... It, it's, it can be considered contaminated. Now, let me ask you this. Is it because the investigation is being done by the military police and that's why they're botching everything up? I think the problem is just inexperience and the fact that okay now it's easy for us to look back and say oh that should have been collected and scraping of the fingernails like the pan should have been bagged because we understand the use of dna but they didn't have that in the 1970s so collecting that evidence wasn't as important to them because they didn't have the technology that we have nowadays absolutely no i know i get that whole thing but i'm saying as far as even simple things like closing off a crime scene is it because the military police was handling it and not the actual police i believe so i i also think that it was so many people knew and loved the McDonald family. And the military police do also have relationships with people on the base. So, like, oh, can I go and see it? Yeah. And then these people are supposed to be colonels, captains. Like, you think that... Right. So it's just kind of like, oh, let a captain in. And let- honestly, I'm sure that that led to the disappearance of evidence due to the fact that everyone liked McDonald and he was a high-ranking officer. So it, it's you know it's it's very possible that that's where the evidence went. Well, on top of physical evidence, the military police are going to fail to do one other thing. They failed to pick up a woman near the McDonald house that fit the description of the woman he described being in his house during the time of the murders. So a woman with a floppy white hat was found wearing a blonde wig blocks away from the McDonald house. She's not picked up. So you have someone matching the, the suspect. Yes. And they don't pick them up. No, nor do they investigate further. What? Yeah. That's crazy. All right, go ahead. <laughs> so despite the mismanagement of the crime scene, the CID is able to bring their case against McDonald in front of an army judge during an Article 32 hearing. An Article 32 hearing is kind of the same as like a grand jury hearing would be in civilian courts. So if the charges are brought against McDonald, then he would be court-martialed. The proceedings were overseen by Colonel Warren Rock and convened from July 5th through September of 1970. During this hearing, McDonald was represented by Bernard L. Siegel, a civilian defense attorney. The CID is going to put forth the theory that McDonald killed his family during a fit of rage while fighting with his wife. To prove this, they're going to use the fact that the McDonald family, which is crazy rare, it's a medical anomaly, they all have a different blood type. Wow, that's yeah. interesting, actually. Yeah, it's, it's extremely rare. And the CID is going to theorize a narrative of what happened based on the presence of the different blood types throughout the apartment. Wow. Yeah. 
So I'm going to put up on the Instagram page and the Twitter page. They actually have a layout of the entire apartment and they have where the bodies were found and a little note explaining what blood types were found in which room. So I'm going to try and go over it a little bit right now. It might be hard because you don't have that visual in front of you, but I will post it up. But Colette McDonald is going to have blood type A. Jeffrey McDonald is going to have blood type B. Kimberly McDonald has blood type AB. And Kristen, the youngest, has blood type O. And this is possible. Completely possible, but extremely rare. I always thought that you you could only receive the blood types based on what your parents are. Is that you, true? You can because look, Kimberly is AB, so that's the combination get, of her yeah, parents. You're right, you're right. And then you can get O based off of any blood type. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fun fact. So in the living room, we see there's blood type A or AB. It's saying so A or AB on the magazine. And there's a blood type O. On the telephone is blood type AB and blood type A, which is interesting. A is the mother. A is the mother. So... How about I do... I'll do it this way. Okay. I'll say whose blood is present in which rooms. Okay. So in the living room, we see blood type... Blood types from Kimberly and Kristen. In the kitchen, we see blood types on the telephone from Kimberly and Colette. In the bedroom of Kristen, the youngest daughter, her blood type is all over the place, obviously, because she's so brutally murdered. But also present in the room is blood from her mother. In the bedroom of Kimberly McDonald you're going to see a mixture of blood from Kristen and her blood all over the room, as well as blood from her mother. Throughout the hallway, you're going to see blood from Jeffrey MacDonald and Colette MacDonald. Within the master bedroom, all blood types are present except for the blood type of Kristen. Kristen's blood type seems to be only seen within her bedroom. And then outside of the back door where the murder weapons are placed, you're only going to see the blood type of Colette and Kimberly. Hmm. It's very interesting. It is interesting. I mean, it's really like all over, really. It really is all over the place. I mean, only one is localized to the room where the murder took place. And that's the youngest daughter. I did also, I was reading up on blood types and how they appear. And sometimes it can be difficult to determine, especially with the mixture of blood types, especially when they are so closely related. So say, for example, you have a mixture of Colette and Jeffrey's blood. Well, that's going to kind of sometimes appear to be blood type AB because they're Colette's A and Jeffrey's B. So, I mean, some of this could, I guess, be explained away by several things, including the fact that when Jeffrey says he gains consciousness, he is going to run and check on everybody. So that could be a huge contamination of blood throughout the crime scene. The only thing that I find interesting is that Jeffrey's blood type blood type B doesn't seem to be 
in a lot of places throughout the apartment. And you'd think if he was being attacked and stabbed with an ice pick deep enough to get a collapsed lung, that it would be in the living room. I, I know what you're saying. What's odd to me the most is how he's left alive. <laughs> how about that? Well, I guess they assume that when he collapsed, he died. And say, okay, say these three men did come in and kill him. When they jabbed him deep enough to hit a lung and he completely falls to the floor and loses consciousness, they might have assumed he died. I see what you're saying, but still. I mean, he went in and out of consciousness. Now, maybe they didn't see it. Maybe they fled afterwards. Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying, like, that is the most peculiar thing, is that he's alive. Right. And his whole family is dead. I'm going to be honest here. And they they stabbed them so many times. Right. And him once. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like, the brutal attacks on the children and the wife, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense. If you're going to brutalize anyone in that home, it would be the husband first. But maybe the anger was placed towards the woman. Or, I don't want to steal all the thunder, but there might be a reason why McDonald's was kept alive and his family was killed. It's possible. But it's, well, just, it's very, very strange. What the defense is claiming is that Jeffrey McDonald was kept alive because they were trying to send a message to him. So maybe they, were, they brutalized his family like that on purpose. Could it's it just, have something to do with his involvement in the military? Well, I'm going to get to that. Yeah, I mean, it's... All right, so let's just... I don't... So I just wanted to give you the rundown of where the blood was found in the rooms, but we'll definitely post that up on Instagram and Twitter. But based on the blood types found in the different rooms, this is what the CID is going to theorize happened the night of the murders. So this is going to be a second account of what happened the night of the murders. They begin by saying that MacDonald and his wife are fighting in the master bedroom. So that's where the scene begins. They believe the fight was over Kristen either being in the bedroom or wetting the bed. What I find interesting is that the bed sheets were never tested for urine. Hmm. There's no so, discussion so of that really throughout the trial. She really did wet, wet the, the bed. bed. That probably would have been really useful information. Right. During this argument, Colette is going to hit McDonald in the head with a hairbrush. They theorize this is how he got his concussion, which I think is kind of silly. (laughs) A hairbrush. I mean, I think their argument would have been a little bit stronger if it was something heavier. But what what are you going to do? The CID then believes that he retaliated by attacking her and then beating her with a piece of lumber. Due to the fact that Kimberly's blood and brain serum was on the door, she must have walked in during the attack and was hit once in the head, maybe by accident. He then carried Kimberly back into her room and stabbed her to death. He then went to Kristen's room to kill her. However, before he could do so, Colette regains consciousness, realizes what's happening, and throws herself over Kristen's body. This was to explain Colette's blood being found on one of the walls in Kristen's room, as well as her blood. Hmm. This also, to them, explains the fact that McDonald's pajama fibers were found in Kristen's bed. McDonald then wraps Colette in a blood-soaked sheet and carries her back to the master bedroom, leaving a bloody footprint in the hallway. 
After the murders, MacDonald threw the weapons outside the back door and went to work covering up the murders using what he had learned from Esquire magazine article on the Manson family murders. He's going to use the tips of the glove to write the word pig on the headboard, and he staged the living room to look like a struggle had occurred. He then, being a surgeon, is going to, well, all the while, see, I think he, the last thing he would have done would be have wounded himself and then threw the murder weapons outside. He couldn't have done it before. Because well, he probably wanted his DNA right, they, on these weapons. Right, they theorized that. Being a surgeon, he wounded himself, knowing where to stab would not cause significant damage. He then is going to call the police and pass out next to Colette. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's pretty solid. That's what I think happened anyway. Well, McDonald's defense is going to come strong up against these allegations. There's no motivation for the murder whatsoever. The McDonald family was happy. Many witnesses are going to attest to this. Colette was going to school. They had a baby on the way. He bought a pony for Christmas. I mean, there's. he seems to really love his daughters. Even if he's going to want to get rid of his family for any reason. The overkill. I know, I know that. That's true. I mean, this is the thing, though. I don't care about witness accounts about how a family was happy. Because you don't know what happens when the doors close. You don't know what happens behind closed doors. Right. So I really don't really take... A, I don't really... I take that with a grain of salt. I don't really believe that. And you know what? You don't... Listen. At the end of the day, humans, we are all animals here. Right. It's very possible that he snapped. I'm not saying that, like, you know, that's it's it's normal here, but... But he has no history of ever snapping. Maybe when it got physical, he decided to snap. Right. It was revealed that McDonald had had affairs. It's very possible that... And that but Colette knew about it, and the two were working past it. That's what neighbors had said, people that Colette confided in. And I believe that if she's going to trust them enough to confide in the fact that they're trying to work through McDonald having affairs, that wouldn't she trust them enough to confide in them if the relationship was abusive or he was angry in some well, because way you, I, in a way don't you want everyone to know that you're worked working through your issues and that everything's fine yeah i guess you're right i mean unless it was a real concern correct you know i know what, what you're mean? saying i don't know so the next thing the defense defense is going to claim is that the whole crime scene is botched evidence is contaminated or lost or can't and can't be tested jeffrey's feet were never checked for blood the clothes were thrown out the crime scene was rearranged just the contamination is crazy most evidence could be explained by mcdonald going through the house after he woke up from being knocked out and just searching from room to room especially the idea of cross-contamination him checking on kimberly going into Kristen's room maybe he brought some of that blood in there so we we really, it's hard to use the blood types being found in the different rooms to explain what happened at first when it was moved around afterwards. If not by McDonald himself, maybe the people that were walking around afterwards. Another thing is cross-contamination definitely just happens because all of the murder victims plus the suspect live in that house. So their DNA and fibers are going to be all over the place. Also, McDonald may not remember every detail 100% right. 
we have to realize this is a man that was probably in shock if, if his account is true. He was attacked. He suffered a concussion. And he was unconscious twice throughout the night. So that is going to make some things hazy. So maybe something's really happened that would make sense. But now he just can't recall it. And it's very possible. You know, that, okay, right there just made me think about something. Really quickly. Go for it. I, I just have to because I'm going to lose this. Do you, do you think it's possible or do you think there's much of a stretch here? If maybe one of the people, women, that he was having an affair with was maybe part of this cult or something, right? No, because, well, we know who the people were. Oh. Uh. So we're going to get to that. All right. But I know what you're saying. Like, maybe they plan for this thing, whole thing to happen and go down. Right. Well, I was thinking but, of this whole, like, you know, send him a message type of thing. I, maybe it was a w- woman that he was cheating, you know, that he was having an affair with. By all accounts, the affairs happened when they first got to Fort Bragg and that they had ended. Great. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not... <laughs> It's not like uh, someone who wants to start a relationship with him. It was just kind of a fling that took place. Also, it's unlikely that MacDonald self-inflicted all of the bruises throughout his body, gave himself a concussion, and 23 wounds, which obviously 22 of them are going to be basically artificial, but the 23rd is going to cause a collapsed lung. It does seem difficult, and I tried to find stuff on angles, But it was really kind of hard to find, like, could he, like, angle-wise have stabbed himself that way? It's different being a surgeon and performing on someone on a table in front of you and kind of, like, stabbing yourself with an ice pick a certain way. Yeah. No, you're right. And there's also no evidence of any records of domestic disputes of any kind, whether it be violence against his daughters or his wife. Also, fibers and hairs, one being a synthetic blonde one from a blonde wig, was found in the house. None of these fibers or hair belong to the McDonald family. Lastly, the fact that police never investigated the fact that a woman matching the description McDonald gave was found walking blocks away from the crime scene. She was wearing a blonde wig and a floppy white hat. Now, this woman, they know, was Helena Stokely. Stokely was the daughter of an army officer, and she was a well-known drug user in the Fayetteville area. And so was her boyfriend, army veteran Greg Mitchell, who was a heavy heroin user. Stokely was even an informant for the Fayetteville Police Department. And she's only 16 years old. 16? 16. So, for reasons unknown, the CID didn't investigate her. Some people theorize because she was a working informant. Hmm. Due to the fact that this was the largest Article 32 hearing in the history of the United States, Colonel Rock wanted to make sure that he got things right. So, he's actually going to go to the McDonald's apartment and attempt to knock over the coffee table... And see if it is going to just fall on its side or flip over because they're claiming, oh, it's top heavy. So when Rock goes to the household and he knocks into the coffee table, it does just fall on its side. It doesn't flip all the way over. Interesting. Yeah. 
So although this seems pretty simple, he's later going to comment that if the CID would have just tried this, they would have realized that one of their arguments was completely wrong. And that if they got this wrong, what else were they getting wrong? Especially because it was such a simple thing to prove. He's just saying it was they were kind of doing lazy work. Right. So it's going to call a lot of things into question. It discredits if, a lot of... Right. Yeah. Why wouldn't you just test this one simple thing? I guess he's leaving no stone unturned. Get it? Ah, <laughs> uh, nice. Rock. All right. So Rock finally is going to conclude that the crime scene is not botched. There is no motive, and the CID did not do their due diligence in first securing the crime scene, and second, they didn't investigate Helena Stokely. After the complete dismissal of charges, Jeffrey MacDonald receives an honorable discharge from the U.S. Army. According to McDonald's, he can't face the former home his family was murdered in, and he can't even live on base anymore. He leaves a lot of the he leaves the furniture there. First, he goes and works briefly in New York City. Obviously, it's where he grew up. But he then chooses to move to Long Beach, California, by July of 1971, and he worked in Long Beach, California as an emergency room physician at St. Mary's Medical Center. He also claims that his in-laws, so Colette's parents, are going to say, if you move, you'll regret it. And it was that move that's going to anger them because they asked him to stay and he decided not to. They were troubled by the fact that he just is going to pick up and leave so quickly but they're going to be more upset by his behavior once he gets to California. Once there, MacDonald is going to buy a house, a boat, a sports car, and he also starts dating again. And now this is July of 71. So we're talking about a year and a few months after the murders. And at this time, Colette's stepfather, Freddie Kassab, is going to request the testimony from the Article 32 hearing, and he's going to pour over all of this evidence. And he starts to think that McDonald's guilty. Adding fuel to the fire was McDonald's appearance on the Dick Cavett show on December 15, 1970. And people's opinions are divided by this appearance. And I tried so hard to find the entire show but it's hard you can't find the entire show but you can find clips of it and mcdonald is well he doesn't look like a grieving widow oh no no not at all he's laughing he's making jokes with the host he's loving the spotlight he is being on tv it that's what it seems like that absolutely he, he really is liking the spotlight people were uncomfortable with the fact that he was joking about the whole situation he he didn't seem like he was grieving. Yeah. And but the different camps, you know, pro McDonald, anti McDonald, they're all gonna make arguments for this. But one thing they can agree on is that this looked bad for him. And some think that he's gonna come off arrogant, cold, he's only talking about the injustice of his accusal and nothing about the murders of his family. Others are going to say that he just comes off arrogant because he's a doctor, and sometimes surgeons do tend to come off a little arrogant, which is the case. Yeah, surgeons, just like my surgeon. He was a big jerk. <laughs> they just don't, they're not people, like, they're awkward socially. 
but you kind of want that arrogance from a surgeon. I mean, I would if someone was operating on me, but it didn't look good on the spotlight if that's the claim they're going to make. They also are going to defend his topic of conversation by adding the fact that he was asked to be on the show not to talk about the murders, but to talk about the injustice of the army and the government, which was a popular topic during the anti-Vietnam War time period. So, I mean, that could be why he's not talking about the murders, but I know that if someone murdered my entire family and I had the platform of being on a national television show, I would try to use that to find the people who attacked me and murdered my family. I get it. I mean, and, but just to play devil out, devil's advocate just with this, he could just be trying to get away from what's been ha- like what went down i mean i i still think he's guilty but i'm just trying to say like you know Correct. in I this scenario on tv he's just looking to get away from that mm-hmm. he doesn't want to be known as oh i'm the i'm the husband and father that lost his whole family you know like i don't know but, no i get what you're saying but yeah i mean i still think the guy's fucking guilty well on his quest to prove mcdonald's guilt kasab his stepfather-in-law will join forces with detective ivory remember the guy from the cid that is convinced of mcdonald's guilt since the army's investigation was complete mcdonald could only be brought into trial via citizen's complaint through the um, department of justice kasab filed the claim in 1972 however this complaint was held in limbo until 1974 because the department of justice stated that because at the time of the murders mcdonald was serving in the army and acquitted and now he's not in the army the complaint is moot however on april 30th 1974 after much much persistence by kasab and his lawyers the grand jury was convened to see if mcdonald should be indicted for the murders the grand jury hearing began on august 12 1974 After hearing all the evidence against McDonald, he was indicted on January 24th, 1975. Within an hour of the decision, McDonald was arrested. On January 31st, 1974, he was released on $100,000 bail pending deposition of charges. McDonald pleaded not guilty and his double jeopardy motion was denied. The trial was to begin in a federal courthouse in Raleigh, North Carolina on July 16th, 1979. The judge presiding over the trial is not going to allow McDonald's defense team to call a psychiatrist as a witness who could attest to McDonald's sound mind and inability to kill his family. This psychiatrist gave testimony during the Article 32 hearing. The judge reasoned that if McDonald is not using an insanity plea, then he didn't want the trial bogged down by psychiatric testimony that did nothing but contradict each other. Because if the defense called a psychiatrist, then the prosecution would call a psychiatrist, and then they'd be cross-examined or called back. And he said, if you're not using an insanity plea, then we're going to refrain from this psychiatric testimony. Which makes sense. The judge allowed the prosecution to admit, as evidence, the Esquire magazine. And that's going to be pretty damning because the prosecution was trying to create the case that it was from the article in the magazine that McDonald's got the idea to stage the crimes like the Manson murders to play on the fears of the late 1960s cult. An FBI lab technician is going to be called to testify for the prosecution about the holes in McDonald's pajama top. 
The night of the murder, McDonald's made the argument that during the struggle with the three men, his pajama top came off and he wrapped it around his hand to block and defend himself against the ice pick. The analyst stated that McDonald's had 48 smooth cylinder-shaped stab wounds, which is unlikely to occur if it is being used to block attacks from an ice pick-wielding attacker. They made the argument it was more likely that McDonald placed the pajama top over Colette's body and stabbed her in a downward motion. By folding it a certain way, the 48 holes could be made into 21 thrusts. The amount of stab wounds Colette suffered. Hmm. Well. It sounds convincing, but my problem with that is you can fold any article of clothing a specific way and have it add up. That's true. (laughs) So that was kind of a stupid argument. (laughs) And if he put the pajama top over Colette and stabbed, wouldn't her blood be more all over it? Like, there wasn't enough of her blood on that pajama top. For him to have stabbed her through it. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that, that makes sense. That's so a good I th- argument. So I thought that was pretty silly. Yeah. The two prosecution lawyers, though, are going to try and prove this point through a dramatic reenactment in the courtroom. One wrapped a pajama top around his hand while the other one attacked him with a similar ice pick. And this does seem like dramatic, but in my head, I'm like, it's kind of funny. Like, they're trying to attack. It's like weird. <laughs> The holes were jagged, and the lawyer received wounds on his hand, and McDonald's had no defensive wounds. So it was dramatic because when they unwrapped the pajama top, all of the wound, all of the holes in the pajama top were jagged, and it was more ripped than there being just puncture wounds. And he still had um, suffered defensive wounds on his hand. You know what it looks like to me, those holes? Like, literally, he just held it up, and just poked and, like, took the pick and just, like, poked holes clearly through it. Like, right. it's, you know what I'm saying? I know, yeah, I, mean, I know what you're saying. Like, like we said or, in the beginning. Or he just folded it up and just stabbed into it. Yeah, because it's like, those aren't... If you're being attacked, the holes mm-hmm. are coming in differently. Oh, yeah. It's, it's very confusing, the pajama top. I think, we're fo- I think everyone focused way too much on the pajama top. Well, when jury members are going to be questioned, they said that that was what they considered the most damning piece of evidence was the pajama top. Really? Yeah, which I thought was interesting, too. Yeah, that's weird. Um, Another piece of damning evidence was an audio tape with uh, McDonald talking to investigators. And on the tape, he seemed indifferent to the murders, and he got extremely defensive when they suggested he was involved. On the tape, they also brought up the fact that McDonald's had past affairs, and that was their way of bringing it into the trial because it was talked about on the tape. And, I mean, that's hard to do, too, because you never know how someone's going to react to something, especially if they were involved in the attack. I think I would get defensive if someone was saying that I murdered my family. I don't know. It's hard, but it was damning for the jury to hear that evidence. Also, it's also based on his personality as well here. Correct. Someone is trying to speak badly against him, and he doesn't seem to take too kindly to that. Yeah. However, the prosecution was really stuck when it came to motive, and I think they are too. There's no history of violence against Colette or the girls. All friends and family are going to say that they never witnessed an argument or heard a complaint, even on Colette's side. Yeah, I know. 
I still, you know, I still think that, you know, it's, you still don't know what's happening. I know, it's true. Especially talking about 1960s, 1970s, you know, you're not really going to talk too much about what's going on internally with your marriage. Prosecution then is going to make the claim that McDonald went into a rage that was made worse by the fact that he was taking diet pills. Diet pills? Yeah. They didn't have any motivation for McDonald. So what they're saying was, okay, he must have flew into a rage. What was he taking at the time? The only thing he was taking was diet pills. So they're saying that maybe the diet pills called caused this rage. Air quotes. Diet pills. He was probably taking like anabolic steroids and had roid rage. No, McDonald's actually a pretty small guy. Oh. All right. And this isn't like... But diet pills would make 2008 you kill Jersey Shore. I'm just saying. No, diet pills are going to make you kill your whole family. Well, obviously everyone knows that it's a really <laughs> stupid so argument. Stupid. So during the trial, the defense is going to use all of the strategies it did during the Article 32 trial as the same lawyer is going to be used to defend McDonald with the addition of another one. However, this time they had something they didn't have before. Helena Stokely. After nine years, Helena Stokely and her boyfriend at the time of the murder, Greg Mitchell, had confessed to many people over and over again that they were at the McDonald house the night of the murders. The defense was stating that McDonald had become a target at the clinic because he was known for being very tough on drug drug addicts, especially the ones who were returning to base after their time in Vietnam. He would not freely give out methadone, which most doctors did on base, and he reported drug dealers to the authorities. There are even occasions that he worked to get addicts into treatment instead of allowing them to leave the clinic. The thing was, was that the people that were getting methadone from the doctors were selling it. So the fact that he wasn't giving it up, people were really pissed, especially the drug dealers in town. McDonald was definitely getting people angry especially the dealers, the people who just want the methadone. And on the day of the murder, McDonald actually had a heated argument with one patient in particular that was demanding methadone, and McDonald was refusing to give it to him. So in the words of Mitchell and Stokely, McDonald had to pay. That's what the people of the town thought. I mean, it would be motive. If someone in like a drug-crazed state who's obsessed with the Manson murders are going to go over and teach McDonald a lesson. Yeah. And that's going to explain the frenzy pattern of the killings and the fact that he was kept alive. So now he has to suffer the fact that his family died. And the fact that he could possibly be blamed for it. Right. I I see I see that this I mean, now there's motive. Now I can see mm-hmm. kind of like why this would happen. But it, you know what it is weird though. Why he I mean, look, I know it's going to sound crazy when I say this. Um but it's kind of weird how he wouldn't give methadone because back then, I mean, and even now, like, methadone is used to wean people off of drugs. But that's not how methadone was being used no, of in not. Fayetteville at the time. Of course not. Plus, you got to remember, this is this clean-cut guy. He went to Princeton, Northwestern. He is, I don't want to say too good, but, like, he just thinks that drug addicts need to like help them he was disgusted by drug addicts i I think though that like he also is very um i'm looking for he's a doctor well he's a doctor but he thinks he must feel like there's other methods of dealing with addiction instead of just prescribing correct methadone 
Correct. That's why he was putting people in the clinics and, you know, things like that. Right. And he's going to make the decision to join. He didn't have to join the army. He could be making so much money just being a surgeon somewhere. Like, he wanted to go into the army to help these people. Right. And that's what he was trying to do, which also makes you think, would a guy like that really murder his whole family? Who's going to make the conscious decision to join the army at a time of war to help people? Yeah. I see what you're saying. So, it's clear also that some people make the argument, how did they know where McDonald lived? Well, outside of each apartment is the rank and the officer's name. So, it's very clear that, like, that's the McDonald household. So, they didn't even have to find out where he lived. It was posted right outside the door. It's like putting a big bullseye on a, on a freaking door. Yeah, I know. Jeez. So when she got to the stand, however, Stokely is going to deny being at the McDonald's house, obviously, because she's going to perjure herself and then she's going to have to go to jail for it. She's going to deny being at the McDonald's house the night of the murder and she changes her story last minute. She claimed that her mind was blank about that night because she had taken too many drugs. Well, the defense team caught on that at the last minute she was going to change her story. So what they tried to do was get people on the stand that she had confessed to, to testify. But the judge is going to deny that. Hmm. That's interesting, actually. That is interesting. Because from my understanding, isn't it up to the jury to decide who's credible and who's not? So, like, they should have allowed her to testify and say, no, I wasn't there. But then they should have allowed the witnesses that she said that to. Well, see, that, that's the thing. And then the, let the jury decide whether she was there or I not. I absolutely agree with you. But this is the thing. What makes that so interesting is that there's another layer to the truth here based on all the people that she told this to. Correct. You know, it's not like, oh, she's out of her mind. She's crazy. She's apparently on drugs or whatever. But this time you have multiple witnesses claiming that they, she, this woman said this to them. Oh, so yeah. and that's why I don't understand why the judge wouldn't allow that. It it really seems like the judge is not allowing the defense a lot of leeway here. And he's allowing to the prosecution. Odd. Very odd. Yes. In his final statement before the jury is going to deliberate, Jeffrey MacDonald is going to make the statement, I am not guilty. And I don't think the jury heard all the evidence. He, of course, is referring to the fact that the judge, like I had just said, had made things inadmissible for the defense, but not the prosecution. On August 29, 1979, after a six-hour deliberation, MacDonald was found guilty of one count of first-degree murder of his youngest daughter, Kristen, and two counts of second-degree murder in the deaths of his wife, his pregnant wife, Colette, and his older daughter, Kimberly. MacDonald was sentenced to life for all of these murders, but they were going to be served consecutively. Another thing that I think is interesting is the fact that the prosecution is kind of like picking and choosing when Helena Stokely is a reliable witness, because if they are using her as a drug informant, how come she's reliable sometimes, but then she's not reliable in the case of the murder? I go, my mind's blank because of all the drugs I took, but your mind seems to be fine when you're telling on other drug dealers. Right. So that's kind of not that's kind of, that's so hypocritical. 
That I found well, interesting. You know, I'm sure that this has happened before, where they're using witnesses to bend the truth and to you know, and to lie and you know, whatever favor it's going to be in. It's it's all bullshit. <laughs> so at this time, 1979, McDonald is serving time in federal prison. But throughout the trial, McDonald had given full access to a journalist named Joe McGinnis. And in June of 1979, uh, McDonald had told McGinnis that he wanted him to write a book about the case and trial. McDonald was under the impression that the book McGinnis would write would try to prove his innocence. However, McGinnis's book, Fatal Vision, did just the opposite. And it was published in 1983. And it painted a picture of a narcissistic sociopath. And the book was even turned into a made-for-TV two-episode, like, three-hour miniseries. And America watched on as Gary Cole played Jeffrey McDonald, and he flew into rages and then switched back to the happy husband in a few seconds. So they kind of depicted him as a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. See, but that's so weird. That doesn't just happen. People that are like that, that claim to be like, you know, two people personality-wise, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. That doesn't happen in a year or two. This is something that starts young, you, you know, you start to, you know. And people you know, see it. And people see it, yeah. Right. It's like, this is something that happens over a long uh, stretch of time. This isn't just, oh, one night I read an Esquire magazine and I go crazy and I kill my whole family. Right. There's zero There is zero motive. motive for him to do it. Even though, guys, I know I said that he was fucking guilty, but, you know, the more I right? hear it, This it, case it, it is, has be. a way of pulling you back and forth, not knowing. It does, but it is it is weird. Someone just doesn't go, this doesn't happen. So they're claiming that he can flip the switch in a second, but we have no evidence of that happening. Correct. So it is weird. And although most from both camps are going to agree that the appearance on the Dick Cavett show buried McDonald in the presumption of guilt, they also believe that this book and TV show is going to put the nail on the coffin. McDonald's going to actually sue McGinnis for fraud in 1987. He was only given full access to McDonald and the defense under the pretense that he was writing a book about the innocence of the man. And in 1987, they're going to settle out of court for $325,000. There was even books written about the relationship between the two men, McDonald and McGinnis. The most notable was the 2012 book written by esteemed author Earl Morris, entitled A Wilderness of Error, The Trials of Jeffrey McDonald. And in this book, Morris makes the claim that what McGinnis did to McDonald is untrue and irresponsible as a journalist. And a lot of people are going to say that what McGinnis did was wrong because it was fraud. And he did, under false pretenses, gain the trust of McDonald, which in theory proves that he's not a sociopath. Right. So it's people don't agree with what McGinnis did, but the damage was done at a national level, especially because of the Dick Cavett show as well. So like the combination of the two, now the nation is going to believe that he's guilty for these crimes, no matter what. The book that Morris is going to write also is going to talk about the injustice and try to prove the innocence of McDonald's. And in fact, McDonald's case is one of the most litigated cases in the country. 
and going through every single appeal and every single decision would take us about another three hours. So what we're gonna do is try to give you an overview of new evidence that def the defense is going to claim and asked to be done and what's been released by the army and what the rulings of the court are. So we're just gonna give you brief overviews because it would take forever to go through all of these appeals that are lasting from 1979 all the way up to 2017. Spoiler alert. <laughs> the first appeal was the most successful. In July of 1980, McDonald was actually released from federal prison on a $100,000 bail on the grounds that his Sixth Amendment rights to a speedy trial were violated. If you remember, he's going to be arrested in 71 but not tried until 79. So like, that's a lot, that's a long time. However, in March of 1982, the US Supreme Court ruled that these rights had not been violated. And after two years of freedom, McDonald is going to be returned to prison to serve out the rest of his consecutive three life sentences. Could you imagine two years out and then you're back in? <sighs> well, if he did commit these murders, then good. But if he didn't, right. that's it's frustrating. Not, yeah, of course. While McDonald was released, he worked as the Director of Emergency Medicine at St. Mary's Medical Center in Long Beach, California. So this place took him back even after all of this. So that must say something for his character, I would say. And also his profession. He's yeah. obviously good He's at obviously what he does. He's obviously very good at what he does, especially being not being practiced for so long and then going back. So throughout this time, the testimony of two people are going to be released. One is one of McDonald's patients. This is a little, I can't make heads or tails of this one. So he claims that he saw McDonald the day of the murder, and the doctor gave him his home number to call if he had any questions about, I guess, medication that he had been prescribed. The man says he called the McDonald's house. A woman answered the phone, and she was laughing strangely and ignoring his request to speak to Dr. McDonald. And in the background, he heard a man say, hang up, don't talk anymore. So hmm. at first, I'm like, oh, my God, that's crazy. Floppy hat woman answered the phone and is talking all weird. But why would this patient call at two in the morning? That's weird. Unless he maybe he Unless, had like a weird uh, what's the uh, reaction to med medication prescribed. Maybe. Okay, that's stretching it. And then if that's the case, then... Okay, that's crazy. But to be honest, if I had a if I had a problem with the medication prescribed and I was something wrong was happening to me, I'd I just called nine one one. Yeah. Unless he was unless it was a drug problem, possibly. Or maybe the man was confused about the time and the person who answered the phone was maybe like two year old Kristen or five year old Kimberly. And the dad's yelling, Hang up the phone, you know, from the other room. That's what you're saying. It so go, it, it could be that. That one confused me a little bit. I don't know what to make of that. But the kids would have been sleeping though. No, I mean, like, what if he called at, like, 6 p.m., really, and not, like, he was confused about the time that he called. Okay, okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know. That one's a little strange, but this one, the testimony of Helena Stokely is also very interesting because she's going to give an interview with 60 Minutes, and this is a 35-minute interview, and you can watch it on YouTube. And the show never airs, so the nation never gets to see it. But in this interview, she talks about her obsession with the Manson murders. 
she's in a, a cult of witches and she does she seems to be completely sober for this but she's a little crazy town and she says that her and her drug dealer friends including her boyfriend were going to teach mcdonald a lesson she admitted that she tried to give this information to the fbi but they wouldn't listen and after stokely's death in 1983 her mother is going to come forward and there's going to be a sworn affidavit where she admits that her daughter had admitted to her two times that in a sober state she was well, she admitted in a sober state that she was present the night of the murders and she wanted to clear her conscience before she died because she was dying of cirrhosis of the liver. Hmm. She's going to die in 1983. And she wants to make it clear that she was present the night of the murders and that McDonald was innocent because she felt guilty he was sitting in jail. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Because I mean, why would she continue to admit this? And even Greg Mitchell, until his death, a year after Stokely, is going to admit that he was there the night of the murders. Wow. I, I mean, I just I just got chills because it's like, oh, that, that is crazy. Jesus Christ. I know. It's hard. You don't yeah, know which way to fall. I don't know which way to fall right now, yeah. In 1984, there was the first habeas corpus appeal in which the defense claims that the judge in 1979 case should have recused himself because his former son-in-law was actually the original prosecutor in the McDonald's case. Ooh. Yeah. Evidence also emerges that the strikes made to Colette's skull were made by someone who was left-handed. If we remember from the pajama evidence, Jeffrey McDonald is right-handed. The judge concludes that there's no new evidence tying an outside group to the house, so they can't say that someone else swung the club at Colette McDonald. And it's determined that the judge had no contact with his son-in-law during the trial, which is weird because it was a year-long trial, and that was all null and void. Wow. Yeah, he just seems every appeal is like shot down, shot down. In 1991, McDonald is eligible for parole, but he refuses to apply because he's maintaining his innocence. Because if he applies for parole, it's him admitting, okay, I did something wrong, but I'm reformed. So he refuses to even apply for parole. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like, let's let's say he is innocent, right? And you're sitting there, and you know that... You could you, possibly you get an appeal. You could get out... But you won't do it. That that speaks volumes in a way. I mean, that's not going to get you out of prison, but that does speak volumes to the people on the outside that, oh my God, look. It's a message. Has... Yeah, exactly. It's definitely a message. In 1995, Fatal Justice Reinvestigating the McDonald Murders is written by McDonald's supporter Fred Bost and Jeffrey Allen Potter. And that is going to bring renewed interest into the case and it's also going to help with the appeals process because they do file for a freedom of information act to try and get all the information to come forth so if everything is compiled that will help the defense attorneys a little bit better and in 2006 fourth circuit appeals court is going to allow mcdonald's to introduce evidence that Jimmy Britt, a retired deputy U.S. Marshal, said he heard prosecutor Jimmy Blackburn threaten witness Helena Stokely. 
And Helena Stokely's mother is also going to say this. She wanted to say McDonald was innocent at the first trial, but the prosecutor threatened her with jail time. Oh my god, conspiracy. This is so... Oh my god. DNA testing is later going to show that McDonald's hair was found in Colette's hand, and a hair from an unidentified person is found under a daughter's fingernail. So once again, there's a hair from someone that doesn't belong to the McDonald household under the fingernail of one of the daughters. Hmm. At this time, McDonald's going to request that there be a sweeping DNA test done. So all evidence should be tested for DNA. Once again, because technology has changed, that motion is denied. (laughs) In 2008, U.S. District John C. Fox is obviously going to dismiss the appeal for the retesting of DNA evidence and calling into account that there has been an unidentified person's hair found under a daughter's fingernail and also the evidence that Helena Stokely was threatened. In 2011, they're going to try another appeal. And this is after, I'm sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. In 2005, Jeffrey McDonald's going to be up for parole. And he had gotten married to someone in 2002, and her name is now Catherine McDonald. And she is going to plead with McDonald to apply for parole. Because there could be a possibility they could be together. So because he gets remarried, he does apply for parole in 2005. But his parole was denied. The next time Jeffrey McDonald's going to be up for parole is 2020. So this new evidence that they're going to bring forth in the 2011 appeal is something called the Brady Rule. And the Brady rule is the idea that if the prosecution finds evidence that could be helpful to the defense, it must be disclosed. We all know that from my cousin Vinny. Hello. Jesus. (laughs) They could have brought this case up in the 90s. So the defense found evidence through the Freedom of Information Act that they requested for the book to be published that evidence was kept from the defense that was found by the prosecution. Are you ready for this evidence? I'm ready. I'm going to blow you away, John. Oh my God, I'm ready. (laughs) A bloody syringe was found in the living room, not from the McDonald house, possibly proving that drug addicts were present. Oh my God, what? Wait, I'm not done. Okay. 22-inch blonde synthetic hair was found, not belonging to any family member. Ooh. A bloody palm print not belonging to the family was found on the wall of the house. In the inside or the outside? Inside. Okay. Ready for this last one? I'm ready. Wax drippings were found on the family's living room carpet. They don't own any candles. So that proves that he was right about the Floppy wig. hat. Floppy hat. Candle. Because there was a candle. She was holding, she was a, holding candle. a candle. Chanting. Chanting. Acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Oh, God. That's crazy. Oh, my God. Mind blown. Mind blown. That's such a mind fuck. I know. I'm I'm fucked. (laughs) But guess what happened? What happened? Motion denied. But I thought we had the Brady rule. Well, they claim that the defense didn't do their due diligence in finding out this information. But it's okay that... 
they hold back information. I don't know. I wasn't. I was. I'm not on the Fourth Circuit. I mean, that's appeals court. I mean, I understand. Oh yeah, do due diligence. I get all that. Blah blah blah. But if you're holding back information, that's kind of fucked up. This crazy town turn of events is going to lead to the book we talked about before. Earl Morris, who's actually a very esteemed writer, to write A Wilderness of Error, The Trials of Jeffrey MacDonald. So it's going to talk about him being wrongly convicted, about McGinnis being a jerk, that whole thing. Unreal. So a hearing on new evidence is going to be held, but the bid for a new trial is going to be denied in 2014. So think about it. It takes a long time, too. So they're asking for a new trial in 2012 based on the new evidence. It doesn't get denied until 2014. And then in 2015, the district U.S. District Court rejects McDonald's request to change the 2014 decision. Let me ask you this. How old is he now? I don't know. It's, oh, okay. It's safe to say that he's old. Well, I would say, yeah, he's he's an older gentleman. I mean, are we lo- like in his 70s, 70s, 80s? He's definitely in his 70s. I mean, look, of course, if I was innocent, I'd want to come out too. I think but at this stage in the but game... But think about it. It's a pridefulness thing. Which and, stems and from his military. Right. Well, it's not... I mean, we can't say like... Everyone likes to say McDonald, military, military. He was only in the military for one year. I think he more wanted to do good. And yeah, right. what I think, I think it's more of like, like we say, unfortunately, surgeons and their arrogance. I think it's him not wanting to let his name be tattered. Well, it's already been dragged to the mud. Correct. <laughs> A lot. <laughs> so the last appeal that we're going to have is McDonald's again is going to ask the Fourth Circuit to overturn his conviction based on the statements from Britt and Stokely and evidence about the three hairs of the crime scene, the palm print, and the... Candle? Candle. Wax. So we're going to see what happens because that was put forth in 2017. And the thing with this case is that you go into it like, wow, he killed his whole family. And then when you look through all the evidence and what was found, a lot of red flags were raised. And this is a complicated one. You know what, uh... You know what imagery I'm getting? It sounds so stupid. What? And I'm sure somebody's going to make a comment on iTunes when I say this. Oh, jeez. I feel like McDonald's super guilty. So he, he, he has a dirty car, and he's going into the start of the car wash. And by the end of this whole entire thing, his car is clean. Because that's how I'm looking at this. I thought that this dude was fucking dead guilty. I know. And now that he's through this car wash, I can see that... It's pretty. It, it's not even fifty fifty at this point. I'm right. more looking so at like a seventy thirty. So this show is exciting as a car wash. Well, you know how when you were like when you were a kid. <laughs> no, like, you I know. Like you love the car wash, but anyway, I understand. I'm just saying that's my a little analogy here. I thought at first that he was fucking super guilty, and now he, in my opinion, it could go either way here. I it's know just it's weird. really because there's evidence that really proves that he's innocent, and there's evidence that is kind of questionable and goes leans more towards his guilt. So let's end it with like some final evidence for guilt, evidence for innocence. Okay. I think that the guilty evidence, the pajama top is really questionable. And it did it in for the jury. Um, the blood movements all over the house are a little questionable. I think that if his events were to be what took place, I think... He, there'd be more of his blood over the apartment. I feel like there's not enough of his blood in the apartment. Yeah. Especially with all his wounds that he... Yeah. Yeah. And then 
the fact that murder weapons were I mean, this could go either way, actually, that murder weapons were found in the house either indicates that McDonald did it or it indicates there were three men and they went there just to like rough them up, rough them up. And then things got carried away by her. By Stokely. Yeah. She probably escalated the violence. Because she did admit she was obsessed with the Manson murders. And, you know, just his behavior after the crime really didn't help him whatsoever. No. That wasn't good. And there really wasn't a lot of signs of struggle within the apartment. But then on the other hand, he was attacked. He did sustain a good amount. And if he wasn't the target, if if it was to prove a message, I don't know. And there's... Just no motive. For him to kill his family. No. I don't think there's any motives. No, there's not. Which, that's the only thing that didn't make sense to me through this whole entire... Yeah. You know. And the the blonde wig hairs and the candle droppings, like, did it for me, I think. Oh, same here. I mean, that's really what's making me feel like he definitely didn't do it. Because even though he might have been in and out of consciousness, he does recall major, major, like, points of the night. And... They're can't. real. And these and people are saying, these. I was there up until her death. Yeah, you can't refute those. If they found wax and they found... And they didn't find candles in the house that matched with it. Yeah. I don't know. Floppy hat's real. Floppy hat is real. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We know we're kind of like all over the place with this case because we really don't know what to... we. We can't decide what we think. So let us know what you think about the Jeffrey McDonald case. Hashtag flappy hat. <laughs> we want to know on Instagram, on Twitter. Please let us know. Visit our website, truecrimecouple.com. And we will see you next weekend. Thank you so much. Bye, guys.